Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin here. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, hey, man, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. How's everything going? How How's Dev Intersection going to happen? What's going on um, with Dev Intersection? Well, you know, we postponed the the spring show. Yep. Uh, obviously, right in the middle of everything going on and when Disney shut down, there was no way we were going to do it then. We talked about delaying it to the fall and then it, we actually were able to get good dates for 2021. So, look for that. The the fall show is the first week of December in Vegas, and we've been in touch with the MGM. At this point, it's on. Okay. But we're going to have to make some decisions in a few months, one way or the other. So, we're just going to have to look at the state of affairs and, and see what the, ci- the city says. I am also in Canada, right? I, I can't go across the border into the United States right now. Mm. So... Uh, it, we'll have to, we, we don't have to decide yet, but we will eventually. And I, I take it the MGM is going to work with you. They're not going to hold you to, you know, Hey, we're going to have to cancel this. And the agreements we made last year now, they, you know, they, it's the advantage of being in the conference business for a long time is yeah. this is not the first challenging environment we've been through. Mm. You know, I was in the conference biz during nine 11. Yep. I was in the conference biz during the great recession yeah. and, and, we're all still in business for the same reason. When these things happen, we work together to find solutions, and it's made all the difference. That's very good. Well, uh, Mads Torgerson is here. We're going to be talking to him in just a few minutes about C-Sharp 9 and other things. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Awesome. Roll the crazy music. What do you got? I found this very cool minimalist CSS framework hmm. called Milligram. Good name. Milligram. Yeah. Milligram.io. And um, it it's only 2K compressed. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, even Chris Love would consider it at this point. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so, it's a minimal 2K. setup of styles for a fast and clean starting point. Uh, it's not about a UI framework. It's specifically designed for better performance and higher productivity with few fewer properties to reset resulting in cleaner code so that's right off of the website and what's cool is that just right off the website you just keep scrolling down uh it starts with typography and gets to block quotes and buttons and lists and forms and tables wow and grids they have a grid system and you know the code uh, di- directives so that you can, you know, have things that are like in a fixed, uh, width font. Um, some utilities and some tips. It's all there on the page. It's just very simple and lovely. It works in Brave, Chrome, Edge, Firefox, IE, Opera, and Safari. And, uh, go get it, man. Hard to argue with. Just take a, take a, uh, any website that's just got, uh, tagging, nothing fancy and it drop this in and you're going to give it a little style. Yep. I'm going to, um, Check it out with Blazor. Oh, interesting. Okay. And uh, see if I can, you know, redo a sort of uh, template or... Give it an aesthetic. Just get rid of the standard bootstrap yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, I see, you know, that was bootstraps for all for the longest time. So, yep. it's, it's good to have a different aesthetic. Yep. A more modern one, too. And it, lighter. Yeah. It looks modern and light and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Milligram IO. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment off a show 1562, one we did back in July of 2018 with one Mads Torgerson. Maybe you've heard of him. Nope. We were talking about C Sharp. Of course, back then we were talking about what will become in C Sharp 8 because that was, you know, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, And lots of great comments as usual. But, you know, it's a mad show. Actually, the funny part is 
I think Martin Reinge, who has his own copy of Mies de Kobay, wrote <laughs> half the comments here. He is having – at one point, he's replying to his own messages. Like, yeah. he got really excited about the show. And Mark Seaman was in there, too. I might actually read two comments here. One was from Mark Wansill, who said, on the eve of C-sharp 9, and he's actually only wrote this a, a month ago, I just wanted to mention how grateful I am for C-sharp 8. I'm able to get back to that Catholic dating app now so that I can finally make marriage nullable. Mm. <laughs> All right. You're not getting music to code by for puns. No puns allowed. You're out. In fact, his comment even says, I'll show my way to the penalty box. Yeah. Yes. Two minutes for puns. Sit in box. Feel shame. Uh, but another comment. Uh, this is from Joshua Hillerup, which is written back when the show was published, where he said, because uh, we were talking about C-sharp A things and nullable types and all that good stuff. And he said, this makes me think it's not entirely unrealistic that in C-sharp 10, along with the required CLR changes, might support pure functions, algebraic types, total functions, dependent types, and so on. Well, maybe some of those will be in C-sharp 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Joshua. We'll find out what's coming in C-sharp 9, much less what's coming in 10 and 11. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment on Facebook and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And you can definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. I got nothing. Java. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, um, as minimalist as possible. Wait a minute. Send us a tweet. Hey, uh, Zip, is that under 2K? <laughs> I think it might <laughs> it's be. It's 280 bytes, but yeah. I think it might be. All right. Well, let's bring on a man who literally needs no introduction, Mads Torgerson. He is Mr. C Sharp and uh, the man who brought wild cards to Java. <laughs> 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 How are you, sir? I am doing well. I had um I, I I forgot to mute myself during your intro and so there might be a few unofficial guffaws from my uh, from my end from before you introduced me. I'm sorry about that. That is quite all right. I think we'll leave those in. Yeah, we are using Zencaster to record this and it records every track individually. So we can yeah. cut out guffaws or leave them in if they <laughs> yeah, happen the to be appropriate. Be. I think they were appropriate guffaws. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, and you know, the funny part is when we were first doing this together in 2005, I think we pushed really hard on trying to do radio quality stuff like sound, sound professional because yep. podcasts was new and young. But as time's gone on, I think we've gotten a little more relaxed about that. There's been a few times where funny things have happened and it's like, now nah, we should leave the funny in. Like <laughs> it's, it's, you can't, you don't have to be serious all the time. You don't have to be perfect all the time. Yeah. I, I think I remember we were coming up to the punchline of uh, a dramatic punchline on a, on a product. And just as he was about to tell us the, the Skype call quit. Yeah, that and was we great. we cracked up. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we cracked up because the timing was impeccable. Like who knew Skype was that funny? And it, it was and like, then, you uh, know, the most important thing about this is. Is dunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think we left that whole thing in, actually. It's good for a laugh. Uh, yeah, we, that was funny. Times have evolved, too. I think people have a different relationship with podcasts, too. There's so many of them now. Yeah, they become more a thing in their own right where, um, you know, with, with their own rules of engagement um, mm -hmm. apart from radio, I think. So. Mm. Yeah, they become definitely their own creature. And uh, we're, we're lucky to still be a part of it, I think. It's been a long time. 
Yep. You you earned it. So things are okay for you, friend? Like, you're all right in Redmond? You guys are all safe and healthy and well and working from home? I'm going to tell you, I haven't been to Redmond for months. It's like, oh, right, it's yeah. so far away. It's like uh, a 15-minute <laughs> drive or something, you know? I've, oh, my. I, and why would I set my foot there? The entire campus yeah. is closed except for essential workers keeping all the servers going. Yeah, right. So, um, maintaining infrastructure. So I don't know what, what things are like in Redmond, but here in Seattle, where I'm at, um, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, there's a gentle breeze. Um, it looks like normal, and then you go out, and uh, things are a little sparse still. In the, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In the you know in the, in the city life, but um, you can hear the crickets and the birds. Yeah, and you know I'm only five blocks from the zoo. And, um, and because of the, um, because of the decrease in traffic in particular during, you know, in the beginning of this COVID thing, we could hear the animals in the zoo. Wow. Hmm. Especially, you know, at dusk, you, um, we'd go out into the, um, into the patio and we would listen and we could hear the monkeys or we could hear the, um, you know, some of the birds up there that would definitely not, um, you know, native bird species of the Pacific mm. Northwest. And still occasionally we can still hear that. So, so there are these odd changes. Mm. Well, I'm sure they're still getting care. You know, we always debate this thing of zoos are uh, inappropriate. They're unkind to animals and so forth. I just wonder which animals are thriving being left alone and just having their keepers taking care of them versus animals that are sort of missing the crowds. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm. a good question. Yeah. And I have, yeah. I have no idea. Um, they've definitely been taking good care of them and they've been posting a little online and so on. Um, yeah. But, um, and they've been having, the animals have been having babies and generally life goes on behind bars, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and that would, that would be one of the signs of, of their thriving is that, you know, often too much attention or too much noise, um, decreases the likelihood of reproduction of uh, you know, pregnancies don't go well, that kind of thing, right. where more, a little more privacy and quiet, you might be, you know, it's another proof that you know, maybe these a, a zoo, public access to zoos sh should be more limited. Well, you, you remember the panda story that happened. Yeah. The, the, the pandas are finally mating because there's no people. Right. Yeah. The people are stressing them. Yeah. So, it's, we're getting all these examples now in this strange time of what impact humans actually have on things. Yeah. Yeah. Environmentally as well, um, where there was a um, temporary dip in carbon emissions that was um, very observable. I saw a photo of, and I can't remember if it was like Shanghai or somewhere in China or India, but, um, oh no, it was Cairo. From Cairo, you could actually see the pyramids for the first time. Right, yeah. They're, they're crazy for cars there, and they're all in a terrible state of affairs. Like, it, it just, and it, it may not be a significant dropping overall carbon emissions, but the amount of smog just not being produced, yeah. you know, makes a huge difference. Certainly, Be I was in Beijing one time when the numbers were off the scale. Like, you could almost see the paint melting off the cars. It was so bad. And they, too, when you stop driving, it clears up. It gives me hope that as this, this pandemic passes, maybe we really can take on climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like. So, let's talk some C-sharp, man. Definitely. Oh, yeah. We could do that, too. What's, <laughs> what's new? What's good? Well, um, um, as, as Richard pointed out in the beginning, um, C-sharp 9 is now um, being worked on. 
Uh, we are mm-hmm. um, we are sort of working on a, a compressed schedule with C Sharp 9. We usually take a couple of years for the next major version of the language, but this time we decided, hey, let's have another one a year after the previous one. So C Sharp 8 came out with, uh, you know, massive amounts of stuff around nullable reference types. Yeah. Nullable marriages. And, um, and, um, we decided, hey, let's try to um, let's try to actually get another one out when .NET five comes out. Wow, which is in November. Um, so, so it's been a little frantic, um, but we worked on some really really good stuff that I think is gonna um, it's gonna move the needle on some of the ways that people work with data, and in particular, if you're trying to stick to an an immutable discipline, um, mm-hmm. which has traditionally been disadvantaged in in C sharp. It's been an imperative language. First and foremost, and that included slanting, you know, the playing field towards mutable all the time and in declarations right. and so on. And so we're um, we're putting in things that make it easier to choose um, uh, to choose immutable, but also make that in particular that make life easier once you have chosen immutable. Um, so we have um, uh, if you want me to go die right in. Um, we have this idea of init-only properties. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so they're sort of uh, halfway between getter-only properties and and old-fashioned mutable get-set properties, in that um, you can assign to them, but only during an object initializer. Right. So so what we're sort of what we're starting to own up to is the fact that object initializers in C sharp three, you know. Um, way back in, we, I think we shipped in 2008, maybe. Yeah. They've become an unexpected hit way outside of the scenarios they were originally built for, which was sort of the link-like query syntax, um, where, you know, it became important to be able to fully initialize an object in an expression context rather than having assignments after to those mutable fields that everyone had, you know? And so object initializers became a thing and they work by just doing the mutation under the hood. You poke values into the object after the constructor has created it. Right. But now in order to take advantage of them, your object has to be mutable because that's how they work, <laughs> you know? And so, right. so now we've created unintentionally, we've created this huge bonus for mutable objects. And we're hearing from many people in industry that they are. Object initializers are so right for them for various reasons that we could get back to mm-hmm. that even though they have immutable object models, they still make them mutable um, just for the sake of object initializers. And wow. we're like, wow, that's a shame. You know, yeah. so we, we came up with this idea. Hey, why, why don't we just have a, a variant of the set accessor that is sort of expires when the object is fully created and you can't use it anymore? Uh, now right. object initializers can poke values into the newly created object all they want. And, but once you hit the end curly on the object initializer, you know, the game's over and yep. the object is immutable or that property is immutable. Yeah, it's nice. So what restrictions are we going to have for what can execute inside that init block? Like, can I fetch data from other sources? Like I, I see it's, you know, the obvious example of just settings of defaults, but. Well, yeah, are we going to, you're in an early state of the construction of an object. Do you have limits? Oh, uh, we don't have. So you're talking about the init block that we have right. talked about having in C sharp nine. That's actually not going to make it in. So, um, um, uh. so, uh, this is more, so there's no like, this is more on the, on the client side that you, mm-hmm. um, you get to, uh, you get to 
assigned to these things, but only during initialization. But in the implementation of these, um, if you write your own accessors and don't use auto properties, in the in the implementation of your accessor, you init accessor in the when you write your property, there you can, for instance, uh, assign to read-only fields, right? Because we're still considering because these can only be executed during quote unquote initialization, we're still allowing you to uh, mutate what is to become read-only state once the object is finished. Right. So like you can in a constructor. All right. So we're we're starting to create this, so that's and then that's sort of well, that links up to what you said about the init blocks. We're sort of we're starting to create this um, notion of initialization time inside of the object that is more than just the the uh, initial uh, field initializers and constructors. That actually mm -hmm. goes a little beyond that. That includes now the um, the the bodies of the uh, init setters, um, but also in the future probably will include more things like you bring up this idea of an init block that we've. We, I think that we're going to do, but we haven't, uh, um, we haven't really finished up, you know, for C sharp nine timeframe yet, which is simply sort of like we call it a final initializer, which is a block of code inside of the object that gets executed when all after the object initializer has, has run after, you know, the client who is creating the object has had a, a chance to poke things into, into properties. Then we have this final thing that you get to validate or clean some things up and whatnot. And then, the, and that's the last thing that happens. And then the object is finished and, you know, the object reference can be stored and, and uh, people can start using it as a finished object. Nice. And yeah, yeah this definitely opens up possibilities on, uh, on the way you would architect. Yeah. We sort of, I mean, it does complicate the whole creation story a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we have sort of opened up a new front here of, um, of uh, things that can happen after the constructor, but that are still initialization. But um, right. But we and think the, that's, and the, and that's that's what you need for this kind of thing. Otherwise, you know, object initializers are still hobbled, and they are to a certain degree still in C sharp nine. But you know, when um, at least they can have their own validation code. But it kind of, I kind of like the idea that at some point we can make it so that you can do your validation. You won't be doing it in constructor code. Um, because that happens before the object initializer. We'll, you'll be doing it in the final, init, uh, final initializer, right? Right. If you want any global validation. I, I also imagine if you are calling from within those initializers to other objects, the order of creation is going to matter a lot. Uh, that's always the case, yes. Um, yeah. Now, the... Um, I mean, once you're in an immutable discipline, mm -hmm. it gets awfully hard to create circles. Yeah. No, you're, you're, um, no cycles. You know, you, you, you can't really have an, it's very hard. I mean, you can arrange for it, but it gets kind of, you have to really want it uh, to have <laughs> yeah, an object. It's your foot and the, it's still a gun. What's that? <laughs> it's still a gun and it's your foot. If you wanted to, you can do <laughs> right. it. Right. But you, you've got to try for it. But you have to sort of find a way to do it where both objects are under, under construction. Um, uh, if you want immutable objects to point to each other, they have to still be sort of in the in the molding phase, <laughs> and um, and but the, but an object reference to them has to be available. So constructors can do that. You know, they can um, inside of a constructor of the object. I guess I could call a constructor to create the other object and pass in or assign in a reference to myself. 
Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, there would be a cycle, but you sort of have to be built for it. It's not something that just happens. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, yeah, yeah, order matters more because um, you have to get things done while you can. Yep. Yeah. And one pass through is not going to hurt anybody. You just don't want to go back through again. You should never need to, and it's not going to allow that to happen. So, um, so that's one thing. I think it's a, it's a tiny little feature that has, I think, a lot of impact. And then there's um, there's one that's more impactful on the syntactic side, but but still very mm-hmm. impactful, which is um, which is records. So we decided to create this whole flavor of class called a record that is um, essentially intended to represent a. Um, a data object, an object that where the value is important, not the identity. Um, and typically, typically they would be immutable as well because um, it, the, we, so essentially when you declare a record, it looks just like declaring a class, except that uh, with some few uh, differences, but um, except that it has a value equality by default. Yeah, and it's assumed to be immutable. Though you can create a mutable one if you want to, but it's assumed to be immutable, and therefore, um, it also, other than the value equality, which compares all the fields instead of just comparing the object reference, it also has a value-based. Um, it enables what we call a width expression. Um, hmm. It's the uh, it's the idea that sometimes referred to as non-destructive mutation. That is a common pattern when you work with immutable objects that you want to um, create sort of the next version of this record of this object. You know, say you get married and you want to change somebody's uh, last name in in the mutable world, you would go and poke the new last name into the object and the old one would be lost forever. Um, in, in an immutable discipline, you would create a new version of the record of that person by copying everything except for the last name and then putting a new last name in. Right. Um, right. And uh, so that's a, that's a style called non-destructive mutation. And we directly support that in C-sharp with records that you can actually, you can take a, an existing record and you can say with, and then put an object initializer. And that creates a new object that's exactly like the old one. It's actually, it physically works by copying the old object and then the object initializer gets applied to it, poking new values into those places where you want to change things. So, so that way you can, you can very easily, um, evolve quote unquote an object, um, as it goes through new object identities. Um, so, so whenever you have immutable data structures and that are sort of evolving over time, um, this becomes really helpful. It's a sort of strongly typed, uh, easy syntax kind of way of of, uh, of doing that. Wow. Okay. I mean, because part of the I'm looking at this and going, didn't we have complex types already and didn't like them? Like, doesn't this seem like complex types? What do you mean, complex types? But just like a structured type where it's like, I where inside of this name is a bunch of other uh, data types or variable types that that live in there like that i guess i'm sorry maybe it's just me thinking database when i hear the word record <laughs> yeah and i think it fits better with how a database um looks at data you know mm-hmm. um a, a database uh typically doesn't have a strong notion of object identity it might have there might be an id in there that's that is the thing that you track along uh, you know numerous uh evolutions to say oh it's the same uh, person, 
you know, started out right. as this person. And it's, that's a thing that stays constant throughout it all. Um, but that, and if you were, if you're sort of mapping to a database with, with mutable objects, you would typically equate that or you try to equate that with the object uh, reference. But, okay. but databases have a quality that's based on what's inside and not necessarily just the identity or they can have. Um, and, um, and that's often, that's often more useful. Yeah. All right. And then, yeah. And then the width is just an interesting syntax. It's, uh, it's fun to watch the evolution of C sharp, um, taking things from F sharp, right. And how those languages evolve. Uh, did the whole immutable thing come from the, the F sharp people or the functional people or just, you know, the C sharp team that, uh, wanted to get some of those, some of that functional goodness in there? It's, it's definitely clear that, um, a lot of this is inspired by functional languages. Like they really, Mm -hmm. in, in a few very important ways, functional programming languages were on the right side of history. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, they, uh, they have some things, some inherent, uh, uh, ways of doing things or like biases that are, that turn out to be good for modern cloud-based programming. Um, one of them is the focus on immutability, which really allows you to talk about their existing uh, multiple versions of the data record for this particular thing. Yeah. You know, either they exist sequentially over time and you can use that to implement diffing and, and undos or whatever uh, to, to log things, or they also sometimes they exist, uh, you know, um, uh, concurrently, if you're in a distributed system and you had uh, edits that happened or changes that happened individually in different places, and now you can talk about it as, oh, we have these two different records representing the same person. Now we can implement a mitigation strategy on top of that um, within sort of the representation of the language rather than uh, outside of it. So, so it comes with these benefits, with the immutability, and the other one that uh, I think we have continuously um, improved our support for in C sharp as well is that they have their functionality on the outside where the sort of at the core of object oriented programming is this idea of virtual methods and everything an object can do is a virtual method that gets overridden uh, throughout the object hierarchy that represents the different shapes that you can have of a mm. given kind of thing. Yeah. And that is great if, so you kind of have data and functionality wrapped together and that is great if you're only doing one thing with that particular kind of data. But typically nowadays you have the data and different apps or libraries want to do different things with the same data. And so having this strong coupling with the functionality doesn't really work. You have to have the functionality on the outside. But in order to do that in a way, in order to make it easy to write that functionality in a way that respects the different uh, concrete shapes that the object can have, you need something like pattern matching, which again originated in, in, um, functional programming. Functional, yeah. and we've stolen all that. You know, we've, we've uh, borrowed our way to, to, uh, make all this kind of functionality first class and C sharp as well. And, um, and that is, um, that, that's definitely something that we, I mean, a lot of us, uh, learned that primarily through F sharp, but obviously there's a whole world of, uh, functional programming languages out there that share most of this um, this kind of core 
um, sensibility, if you will. But, but mm-hmm. then we, then we have a challenge of how do you fit that in well in a fundamentally object oriented paradigm? Mm-hmm. And that's, that is, so the main design challenge for us with these features that includes records as well has been, um, how can you make it work well in an object oriented world? So it's not just like a whole alternative language within the language, but that things mesh well together and it, it, it enhances your capabilities without making you have to go and do everything in a different way. Right. And guys, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all of the NDC conferences this year are going online. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's Don at Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl yep. Franklin. And we're talking to our friend Mads Targerson about... Wow, some uh, interesting thoughts in the C sharp nine space, and and I got to think that part of this is really comes from you guys are all open source now. You build your stuff on GitHub, like you're simply talking to the consumers of C sharp about these features before you build them. Oh yeah, yeah. The whole design process is um, is out in the open. Anyone who wants to engage, and you know who can stomach the. Um, the churn of a, of a GitHub repo. <laughs> um, yeah. They, uh, they, they have a say, right? They have visibility to what we do. Our design meetings, they aren't broadcast. We decided not to do that, but, um, but the notes from them are, are immediately published within a few days, typically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all the artifacts that we work on, our documents, our proposals and ideas and, um, all of that are documents in a, in a GitHub site, uh, C sharp lang, um, under, um, under dot net. And so everything, everything we're playing with, people can see it. And the implementation, uh, in, in the shape of the C sharp compiler, obviously is also open source in its own repo called Roslyn. So, um, so we're just like in constant dialogue with the community. And they can take your early bits out for a spin too, right? Like you're pushing that code into GitHub. If you want to take, try some of this stuff, it's there. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's exactly right. Um, do many people do that? Um, they, most people wait until we put out previews. Right. Yeah. Um, so we actually, the, the shipping compiler at any given time, uh, typically has, some preview features in it that if you just, if you set the language version to preview, then the, the preview features will light up. Um, so actually the, the shipping bits have previews in them. <laughs> and we're, we have good enough, uh, code, you know, uh, code coverage, uh, test coverage and, um, and a good enough process that, that, that's stable. We were able to do that. And mm-hmm. so that's how most people, once we decide to put a feature into preview, it's been hardened enough that the feature isn't necessarily, it's still like soft and malleable. We can still make changes to it, but it's, uh, the rest of the code is, is rock solid around it. So that if people don't choose the, the preview flag, they have the production compiler. 
But um, but some people do also do the other thing, and some people build the branches and and um, and publish them from time to time. Mm. For instance, if you go to Sharp Lab, um, uh, just go to the the website Sharp Lab. Uh, you can pick typically you can pick uh, various um, feature branches and and try you know just write C Sharp in a window in your browser and see what it turns into and, and run it. Oh yeah, right. Um, this is a place where you can literally just write code in the language of your choice, right? Like you, yeah, there's a bunch of, uh, of of options here. Yeah, and and so you can pick a build. Yeah, pretty much. Wow, look at that. Yeah, like literally, like here's the 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 C sharp nine May thirtieth build with function pointers. Very cool. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah what a great link. I'm going to include those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. So that is a good. So if you want to sniff at things a little earlier and run, you know, you can run a little more risk because it's just in a yeah. on a web page. You know, how bad is it going to don't mess with how, your own machine, right? How bad is it going to screw up your machine? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if it, if it can reach through the browser, and mess up your machine, there's something wrong with that browser. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so that so uh, people have a lot of ways depending on how early they want to engage and how shaky things they want to try out um, of of actually engaging with the code. But obviously, we also talk about it a lot. And even before something becomes a feature um, from an implementation standpoint, we already have a dialogue going. Um, typically, um, the, the proposals will be in there in, in C Sharp Lang and be discussed. Um, sometimes, if there's something I think is promising but long term, you know, I'll bring it along in a talk and I'll talk about it for the last 10 minutes and I'll do that over, you know, for a while and I'll start getting some feedback just on the idea. People will say, oh, that'd be cool for this scenario or this would really screw me up over here or something. And, and so we even try to seed some very early feedback when the feature isn't even, you know, designed when it's just like um, slideware. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You get to play, play with it early on. I've dug up your blog post on C-Ship 9. You're talking about pattern matching. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, don't we have regex? Do we really need more than that? <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? That's not right. I take that. Back. Uh, you can you can always if you if you regret it, you can always snip it out of the uh, out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I had a problem. I used regex. Now I have two problems. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, pattern matching is something. It's a feature that we introduced, I believe, in C sharp seven. Oh wow! And um, it's again. It's one of these echoes of functional programming. Interesting. Um, and um, it introduces a whole new concept into C sharp called patterns, which are essentially a combined sort of test of on a value and and information extraction. Right. So um, any pattern you apply a pattern to a given value, and the pattern either either matches or not, and if it matches there might be some information that it extracts from the value. Um, and so that's a little abstract, right? But that um, uh, that could be as simple as um, doing a type check uh, on the value. And then if it has that type, let's say you have some expression coming in, it's just typed as object. And now you can, you apply the pattern um, string to it. And if, and if the, if it's actually a string, then you want it as a string in sort of the true branch of that test. And so you say string S, that's a pattern. And, and uh, if it matches, um, you will get a string called S. And that's the value. Right, yeah. right, so you now you get a nicer type checks. And so in the beginning, we only had a few kinds of patterns like that. And we had a few places where you could use the patterns. You can use them in an is expression that 
previously could only be used to test the type but not get the value out in that nice strongly typed variable. And now you can, instead of saying something is string, you can say something is string S. And now in the true branch surrounding, you know, any conditional logic around that, if you say, if my expression is string S, then in the true branch, you have S and you can work on that as a string. Um, so, but now we've added more and more patterns and we've added more and more uh, places that patterns can be used. Uh, we've, they, they were in switch statements from the beginning as well. Now we have a, a whole new kind of thing called a switch expression, which is, yeah, an expression based version of switch that's much, ter much terser and, and, um, simpler in many ways. Um, and we have all these new kinds of patterns, including some that are coming into C sharp nine and that are also, um, just like the features I talked about. Uh, are also out in uh, in preview already at this at the time of recording here. Um, yeah, I'm, I guess I, I'm looking at the code sample and just thinking like, is this clearer? I mean, it's simply it's powerful, but does it help me? Do, do I really understand the code better? It's a, it's an interesting battle of this terseness in, in versus clarity. Yeah, like, do I know what this does? Yeah, and I think it takes a little practice to write clear code with patterns if you're not used yeah. to the concept. Um, I, there's a particularly wonderful, um, uh, tutorial that our, our old friend Bill Wagner yeah. uh, put up on, um, on their, the C sharp docs and, you know, docs at Microsoft.com about pattern matching, which really shows the power of, you know, if you have things that have a lot of different potential shapes and contents and yeah. you want to do different things depending on it, you can write these beautiful, uh, switches that, um, Instead of having nested ifs and and having sort of the the testing and abstraction splattered out all over your code, yeah. you have these succinct patterns that say exactly under which conditions you can look at it and say, "Oh, I know exactly under which conditions this branch is going to get taken." Um, you can look down over all of them and you can see everything that gets handled in the order it gets handled without looking at the the logic in between and so on. So it gets super beautiful. Yeah. And um, but it takes a little practice to write those beautiful things. Obviously. Um, uh, Bill writes beautiful things, but, um, but once you pattern match, you can never go back. But it, it kind of shows the promise of it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, to some degree. If you have now, if you have uh, some complex logic to decide what should happen, um, think about what it would look like as a pattern. It might take a little, a little while for you, especially if you're new to it, to get it sort of wriggle into the right shape. But once you have it, mm -hmm. it, it in improves the readability of your code so much. Right. And it's, it kind of can't do anything that you don't want it to do. Like it's inherently sort of self-tested code too, right? Like, I don't know how you'd write tests around the pattern match like this. How do you, how, how are you thinking that it would be hard? I'm just, yeah, I'm thinking about how I would, because it's fairly declarative, right? To set a pattern, set of pattern rules. Like that looks like the declaration of the test anyway. You just have to come up with all the variations that the patterns will match, right? Yeah, I, I guess it makes, I think for testability purposes, it actually makes it clear what different, uh, you know, it, it gives you a very clear um, notion of which different cases you have to test for. Um, because they're spelled out in a list right there, rather than being mingled in with the business logic. 
Yeah, no, it's it, it, in that sense, it's very clear. Yeah, I think it makes code more testable. There's not a lot that makes it. It just it's not that hard to uh, to figure out what this is going to do. It's not going to do anything else. There's a whole bunch of group of tests I don't have to write because it's going to reject them all. Mm. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, and I'm not saying not testable in the, in a negative sense. I'm, I'm saying it in a sense of there's a bunch of stuff you're just not going to need to do because the the boundaries it's setting are pretty clear. Right. Now, obviously, we need to test it a lot because we're testing the compiler. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you have to be right, Mads, because I'm barely right. If you guys are ever wrong, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, other fe- other features? What's another favorite? Um, I I try not to pick favorite features. <laughs> mm, um, but I, I think that is certainly the most impactful this time around is what we're doing around immutability with records and with the yeah. init-only uh, properties. And it's something that um, I think it's also another example of what we talked about with pattern matching. I think we started to think about uh, features, language features a different way. I think in the um, in the old days, we were, we designed every version of the language like it was the last. We were like, okay, um, we this feature has to be completely um, finished and and kind of all the corner pushed it out to all the corners it can possibly reach and all decisions have to be made about it before we ship it. Whereas now we're happy to, to, uh, launch a feature in a relatively limited ver- version. As long as we've convinced ourselves that it has potential to grow in the directions that we foresee, then we will put, you know, the first parts of a feature into a version of the language and then watch the feedback and, and use the um, use the sort of the the outcome of the initial launch to guide where to take it next and how to do the next things that we envision. So rather than having mm-hmm. having to take a big wild bet at um, everything related to the feature, we we can navigate um, uh, over a few releases and get the whole thing out. And that's that's what. Um, so you get these themes that that stretch over multiple versions of the language. Uh, pattern matching has certainly been like that. It's sort of the the poster child for that. But um, but records and and immutability is is some of the same. We we launch some things now, but like we talked about the the init blocks, they're not going to happen now. But there are all these things that that are related to that theme that we can then feel our way to. What is the right way to do that? And what's the right way to do that? And eventually. The whole feature set might be out, but over multiple releases. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I guess that's the interesting truth too, right? It's like if it doesn't make this build, it might be only the next one. Like you, you can take your time and try and get things right. Yeah. And when you're in C-sharp 3, you know, it's fair to ask yourself, will it ever be a 4? But when you're in 10, you know, ah, that's probably going to be an 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a yeah, speaker, you know? Half dozen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're, I think you're going now. It's probably not going to go anywhere else. Like, it's <laughs> right. going to keep happening. Yeah. I think we're onto something here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it may, it may be a thing. I'm just guessing. <laughs> Pretty sure it's a thing. Wow. All right. Uh, and you figure you're going to get this done for November. Yeah. Yeah. It looks uh, like it. A, we, and- we have most of the features now, as I said, um, they're in, uh, the, in the public preview of Visual Studio that shipped on, I didn't actually check, but I think it actually ships today, um, which is uh, day of recording. I don't know if I'm supposed to say yeah. that. You can, you can yeah, try that's it. All right. 
you, everybody knows we time shift. Yeah, man. we're, we're <laughs> in 2020. Yeah. Everybody knows um, we time travel. Right. Yeah. So if you if you get that preview of Visual Studio and you um, and you use one of the new features, the compiler will helpfully tell you actually that feature is not available in production. Um, click here to to uh, put the compiler into preview mode, and um, and boom, you're in preview mode and you have these features. Nice. Yeah, there's lots of possibilities there. And and you certainly can take it out for a spin. I, I'm going to be impressed to get .NET 5 out on time because it's very ambitious what they're trying to do. This unification of the frameworks. Like, yeah. I don't, en- I don't envy. Well, you guys did this with C Sharp 8. Like C Sharp 8 to me sent, sent, felt like a heavy lifting version, right? Absolutely. And it became core only. I don't know how much flack you actually took for that. But I got when you were talking about 8 back in the day, it's like, wow. This is a heavy lift version, and in some ways, nine is just taking advantage of all the hard work you did in eight to make these other things possible. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, we're opening some new fronts, but it's definitely a lighter version than eight was. Yeah, that's not saying much. And we also only have half the time to do it, so that's so that's yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, and it was yeah, and and you don't have to boil the ocean every time you do a new version, mm-hmm. you know. Right, but I also think, and now you mentioned the .NET five thing. I mean, it was very. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there's a monu- monumental thing there to get the to to get to where we have just one .dot net, and I, yeah. I think we're we're sort of admitting that it's going to happen over .dot net five and six as a wave. Like not everything is going to be yeah completely yeah. unified and and completely ready to go in five. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's um it, yeah, it's a massive undertaking, and we're we're sort of trying from a language side, we're trying to go light <laughs> on things that um that impact um, at least the runtime for now. But, but, the, but the whole architecture of .NET Core has actually opened up um, the ability for us to evolve the runtime itself in a way that we haven't done for a decade and a half, essentially, since generics, hmm. where, where a language feature doesn't have to be all compiler tricks down to existing IL. We can actually expand the expressiveness of IL. Mm. Because of the way, just because of the way that you acquired on that, like if, <clears throat> if, um, which is, you know, as opposed to the, uh, the classic .NET, which was a Windows component. And when you wrote something, you couldn't know if people had the latest version. So we could never rely on that. But now we, now we can just require it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And sort of we can expect the, um, the runtime version and the language version to travel together in a whole different way. I got a question for you. It's a little bit off topic, but um, are you impressed or what are your thoughts on uh, the, the Blazor component model that, uh, you, you know, how Steve Sanderson is, and team have sort of simplified how binding is done and how events are handled and uh, all of that stuff? You know what? I have absolutely no opinion on it oh, okay <laughs> i haven't hmm. i haven't really given it not um, my circus enough of not my monkey <laughs> uh, yeah there's a little bit of that yeah it's um you'd be surprised that maybe you wouldn't at the, the things i don't know about other parts of that net it's yeah. embarrassing in a way sometimes well but, then uh, i won't even ask it. the question let's just take <laughs> let's just take that question out yeah brandon maybe i can maybe i can i can give you another meatball here <clears throat> Some ads, um, just out of, out of left field, is there anything out there in the open source world that has caught your attention that you uh, think, oh, you know what, That's I like the way they did that. Let me see if we can uh, sort of get some of that juju in C Sharp. 
that so are you are you talking about from an open source perspective or from um no not necessarily a sort of technical language perspective yeah yeah a technical language perspective i mean yes there's definitely i think that <clears throat> to some extent um there's been for a long time there's been c near consensus among languages about how rich the type system is at least among you know strongly typed object oriented languages mm -hmm. of which there's been a, mm -hmm. you know there's been a few but i think lately um some languages have i mean there's always been languages that push the boundaries on this a lot but they haven't been that broadly used but i think there some things are becoming more commonplace where we're like whoa they're doing some fancy things in their type system yeah. that we would that we can't do you know, and we would have to, th these are the kinds of things that we would have to go and muck with our runtime to yeah. be able to do. And um, so it's kind of lucky that we are now able to do so, <laughs> as I mentioned before. Right. Because I think we have to do some more thinking. And we started to do some thinking on like, what are the, what are the most valuable things, the most valuable ways we can evolve our core type system um, that... Uh, can express some of those things that we, where we can't quite um, quite join. Like just as an example, it's not the only thing, but as an example, um, some languages have a better time at um, adapting existing things to new types, for instance, or new requirements. Mm. Like we have a little bit of it in with a. Uh, extension methods where you can say, yeah, whoever wrote those types, I'm going to give them an extra method, yeah. you know, I, even though I can't go and hack their source code and they don't care about my scenario. Um, right. So that's sort of like an inkling of something that lets, that lets me adapt other people's types to a new scenario. Um, but only if it's a method, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas in, uh, first of all, you could imagine, well, do that with other members and so on, but you, but also, increasingly, you see ways, often somewhat limited, but but still useful ways that you can adapt to other types, like to an interface in, in our speak. Um, say that, yeah, that type didn't implement the interface, but I can implement the interface on it. Um, so I can do sort of post hoc abstraction, if you will, a post hoc adaptation without the participation of the concrete type in question. And that... That gives you some software engineering benefits um, in terms of dependencies and ordering, and just what's possible. How how much you know? How much tedious wrapping and and reflection do I have to do to fit these things together? I think some of that is very exciting, and and um, that's an example of something that a few other languages have a better take on than we do. And I, and I want to go and steal from there. <laughs> we can't always just steal from the functional languages, you know. Yeah. we got to broaden our uh, the crime scene here. <laughs> I, and I, I guess there's always a struggle between what's what's an, what should be an extension to the language, what should be an extension to, the, to like a base class library or a framework element or a library of some kind. Like, it, it, is there a debate in that? Um, there is to some degree, yes. Because, and I think... Um, the kinds of features that I just um, mentioned, they play to that debate because today um, we often have to do things centrally um, for them to be able to happen because of dependencies that we can't get rid of. Um, that maybe if we had more of a, more decoupling features, 
more things could be factored out and, you know, maybe not even done in our core libraries, but done elsewhere. Um, but also on the other dimension, there's, there's a, a debate about should something be done at the, essentially at the runtime level, at the, mm-hmm. at the core library level, at the language level, or at the tooling level, right? Those are sort of our four right. main, uh, levers, but we're, we have our hands in all of them, right? Um, right. and so, uh, we can have that debate, um, and do the right thing without it sort of becoming politics between the owners of the different layers. Yeah. You know, and, and I think we've gotten a lot better at that saying, Hey, that really feel, this really feels like, something the library should do or um this really feels like and something the language should support and we can agree on that and then do things the right place and sometimes actually and, and you're implying this but i know it from working on the history that that wasn't always the case right it's not the traditional microsoft way to collaborate like that <laughs> even when microsoft <laughs> did own all the parts that didn't matter because it wasn't the same orcs owning all the parts <laughs> We're a lot better at that now, and we have really good conversations all the way up and down. Well, yeah, it is more, much more one Microsoft than it has been, in, I think, in a very long time. Yeah, and you know what? Um, the whole turn to open source, I think, has actually – it's not just another reflection of the same thing. It has actually actively helped us internally as well. Um, right. When you're sharing everything and doing everything in dialogue with with the world, you know, you also – can't really like work in, in secrecy from each other or yeah you, you can't know. ignore each other you're not surprising each other right so there's, so there's, there's less room for for malice i guess but also just less room for just not having realized what those other people were doing <laughs> yeah. yeah we did. So it's, a, it's it is such a big company and back when you did keep secrets and, and construct launches, you were surprising the company as much as you're surprising the customer. Right. I mean, I remember the days when, you know, when we built uh, async in C sharp five, mm-hmm. um, that whole thing got um, tangled up in, in windows eight, you know, which is an error that we prefer not to bring up, but I'm doing it anyway now, <laughs> which was super <laughs> secretive and went on for years. And yeah. where the, um, the, the penalties, associated with you know accidentally spilling a secret were like termination yeah yeah so everyone was was scared to um to accidentally reveal something and all the all the collaboration happened through these very shady channels and with a lot of vetting and tents that you were in or not in and stuff and um not literal tents um but uh so uh i remember i at some point i gave up even writing the internal design notes, we just didn't have design notes for, I think, a six-month period or something because it was too risky that somebody would get hold of the design notes and glean something internally about Windows 8 that they were not supposed to know. Mm. You know, it was that right. kind of paranoia that was and going then on. You would, <laughs> and then one of your people would take the blame for it and, and literally – there was a history of that being a career ending yeah. event. Yeah. So how do you how do you innovate and how do you collaborate in an environment like that? That was mm. that was really hard. Yeah, I so uh, I mean, this is just the today's setup is wonderful. I mean, it's just a, yeah. a world apart. Well, it means you actually get to help each other, right? Yeah. Find th- find new things and go. Wow, this is a huge opportunity for all of us. Right. Let's yeah. do something with this. Right. Exactly. It's very it's it's a nicer time. Definitely. And speak, speaking yeah, speaking of time, ours has come to an end. Unfortunately, Aww. but uh, we'll we'll see you out there somewhere. 
I'm sure, Mads. One of these days. One of these days. I'm sure. Or I'll invite myself back on your show one day and uh, and we can. You well, can always, always do that, from. yes. <laughs> love great. to have it's you always love Well, uh, one of these days the border will be open again. You can come north. Oh, I would love to. We're so close to each other, but on the opposite sides of that suddenly impenetrable boundary. Oh, yeah. Oddly imaginary line, right? Yeah. The largest undefended border mm. in the world. Well, uh, even if that doesn't happen, Mads, uh, anytime you want to talk to us about uh, anything at all, just let us know. And thanks for telling us what's uh, what you guys are doing with C-Sharp. It's great. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a